Hi-ho, Kermit the Frog here. I'm here to tell you about this great podcast called Nerds on Film, where a bunch of, you guessed it, nerds talk about all things movies and share some jokes too. Join us as Nerds on History host Brian Moriarty shares the mic with Sarah Ashley and Dave McGuire, and a frequent guest, Kevin Satorius, whom I hear is really good at impersonations. <laughs> Thank you for your time, and here's today's episode of Nerds on History! Yay! Last time on Nerds on History, Eric, Brian, and Dave, well, they talked about Bigfoot. But the time before that, well, Eric and Brian talked about what happened last week. But the time before that, Eric and Brian made some stuff up. But the time before that... They went totally epic as Maximus on Rome. All right, Brian, I've fixed the TARDIS, and we should be in ancient Rome and its magnificent palace. Let's, Are you sure? I'm positive this time. Let's right. walk outside. Ah. It looks like we're in the Colosseum in the middle of the Gladiator games. Aha. Uh -huh. I well, told you not to fix the TARDIS with bubblegum. It only works in the movies. But I did get us to Rome this time. Um... Why is everyone so excited? Uh, I see that dude with the, the trident over there. Yeah? yeah? I'm pretty sure he's about to kill us. Oh, okay. Um, although, do you notice the helmet? It's known as the Thracian helmet. It's actually uh, wait, quite uh, beautifully uh, ornate. Uh, duck. Oh, ah, yeah, uh, hold on. Let me deal with this. Ah, all right, um, uh, Brian, come on over. I want to show you something. Uh, the helmet, like I was saying. You see the eye holes there? They're, they're actually totally and completely ornate. They, they really have absolutely no purpose. In fact, they totally obstructed this guy's view, which is probably why I was able to impale him so easily. And uh, really, it's, uh -huh. it's all just for show. But look how much the crowd is loving it. Yeah, this is all yeah. very fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, why is that guy got his thumb pointed at sideways? Oh, shit. Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. Eric, how are you, sir? I am exhausted. Yeah? Why are you exhausted? Because I've been breathing in fiberglass and sawdust since about 10 a.m. this morning, which was For good recreation? No. Uh, Nerd Cave 2.0, coming along, progressing. We are in construction. We are literally in construction. Yeah, the room is cleared out now, and uh, Sarah and I spent the morning and afternoon working on uh, on putting up the wall. So we put the insulation in, hence the uh, fiberglass, and then yeah. we uh, put up the drywall, or sorry, not the drywall, the uh, plywood, yeah. uh, hence the uh, the sawdust. And uh, i got to thank my brother, give him a big shout-out this episode, because uh, not only did he provide all the tools and equipment, but also the know-how of how to use the table saw without cutting off our thumbs, uh, which, yes, is a good thing, generally. Paul has always been a resource for us. Whenever we needed him, he's been very selfless, and we owe him a tremendous amount of gratitude. So thank you, sir. Absolutely. I will say, it is amazing how much a wall can make a difference. Because this external garage we were in had no walls. And it was essentially a very skeletal structure. Well, it had two walls. It had it had the other wall, uh, and the other full wall, and then the half wall with it the door in it. had a wall, but it had no insulation. Right. It was still like literally the beams and rails of the wood right. from what was it was built at. So some of the rooms had it, but the room we were in was pretty much 
bare. Pretty bare for the most part, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was one wall that was complete, I think. Two walls. Two walls that were complete. Two the walls. other two were completely stripped down. And uh, now virtually all four are all together. So it's a like lot a of progress. Yeah, yeah, we just got to get some paint on them and uh, get the furniture in there, get the equipment set up, get the carpeting, get the soundproofing, pretty much... 70% of everything else. <laughs> yeah, but it's it, it gives you the motivation when you see the space come together. Honestly, my hope is that we can be moved in by May. And I think that very early May is is a reasonable uh, assumption on that, based on all the hard work that everyone's putting in. So. Yeah, we'll, and we'll definitely tweet pictures of the Nerd Cave as it's coming along as well. Oh, and our and our door that we have planned, oh, which yeah. is going to be amazing. Yeah, we'll see if that's a surprise then. So, we were talking about the... Roman Empire. We were talking about that. Well, we well we were three episodes ago. I know. <laughs> uh, again, listeners, in the past, our, the only other two parter we did, we had a, a break in between it, right? And then we we, we had one it. episode break. Right? Yeah. This time we did a little bit longer because we had a special guest that we wanted to to bring on the show, and yes. we had to wait for timing to work, and we had to wait for it all to come together. Now it has, and we promise it will be uh, a truly epicus maximus show. If you Nerdonomy fans out there are wondering what a Cinderella tale this is. That ever wondering, man, I wish I could be on that podcast. No, no, that never asked me, though. No. Well, tonight you'll be proven wrong, because our guest this evening is a fan of our Nerds on Film podcast. He is actually an experienced broadcaster, and as, of course, the ticket of admission, a true certified nerd on history. Uh, his specialty is in Rome, and he, in fact, has a... Uh, that was his minor in college as well. Yes, Yes. Um, Very are, impressive, I know. Minor, yeah. yeah. So, please, <laughs> so please welcome to the show, Mr. Dan Lazarus, a.k.a. The Lazarus Man, capital T-H-E, space, capital L-A-Z-U-R-S... L-A-Z-A-R-U-S, space, capital M-A-N. The capital T, though, is the most important part. Yeah, if you don't do that, then you're doing it totally It's a completely different Lazarus Man. It's not grammatically correct, either. It's the one with, you know, it seems TV show they made in the 90s. Robert Urich... Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well done, sir. Thank well you. Done. Thank you. We didn't make an 80s slash 70s cultural reference. You're welcome at our table. Yeah. Right <laughs> all right. Uh, so tell us, first of all, before we get into the meat of the topic, please, what made you fall in love with Rome? It's kind of it's kind of a, a weird path that I took. Um, initially, my, my history um, fascination was always about... Uh, the ancient world, Egypt, and when I was younger. But then I sort of went away from that. I became really kind of fascinated with uh, Asian history, uh, you know, feudal Japan. I'm a huge fan of samurai fiction, that sort of type of thing. And so I really went into learning about uh, the feudal era, uh, you know, of Japan, samurais, and sort of even, uh, you know, the, the Meiji Restoration, where they got rid of the, the landed nobility and kind of converted into a military uh, dictatorship. And that's, right. to me, it's very interesting. Also, huge, huge fan of Genghis Khan and the Mongols. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely oh, a lot. One of my favorite bands from the 80s. Yes. Was, was certainly Genghis Khan and yeah. the Mongols. <laughs> yeah, Genghis Khan. You know, I love that they were scene. They a hair band, right? Oh, absolutely. One yeah. of my favorite scenes in Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure is the mall scene where Genghis <laughs> Khan goes crazy with the baseball bat and, uh, you know, you know, the song that Beethoven is playing. Right, playing it's pretty shot, awesome. Right. So, that's a great scene. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that's where I got my, my history fascination from but when it came to roman history i didn't really know a whole bunch about it until i decided to study in college and i needed a minor 
to graduate with a broadcasting, you know, radio broadcasting degree at San Jose State. Uh, A minor was required, and I decided to go for something rather than something that worked with broadcasting, you know, like maybe uh, theater or something like that. I decided to go straight to, well, what am I interested in? I'll just do something that I know that I'm going to want to read about. And so I said, you know, history, and I looked at the selections, and I I didn't want to do medieval or anything like that. And I said, oh, Roman history, that's a good one. Classical classical history is technically what it was. Now, so. before, before we get into Rome, you said you were a big fan of Japan. Well, that's great, because we've been wanting to do a show on the Shogunate. Yeah, so we should have yeah you back very on interesting. You also, correct me, you're a fan of Kurosawa, right? Huge fan, yeah, yeah. Good, so we should maybe have you on a Kurosawa. Oh, I would love to. Uh, Kurosawa's got amazing movies. Uh, for anyone listening, uh, one of his sort of uh, hidden gems is a movie called Dreams. Right. Uh, and it's a... F- I remember you were telling me about It's this. an amazing movie. Every scene... It's, it's, a, it's a bunch of short films put together. There's no overwhelming th- or over, overarching theme other than these being dreams of Kurosawa from when he was very young to, you know, his Twilight era as, a, as an older, older filmmaker. And in fact, um, Martin Scorsese guest stars in that movie in one of them as Vincent Van Gogh. Interesting. So, so there's a fascinating, yeah, there's kind of a fascinating <laughs> thing if you're, in, and it's it's a very visually perfectly done movie, visually. Story-wise, again, they're all dreams, so they're kind of surreal and, and, and strange, uh, but visually, I would say it's a masterpiece. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, but I'm a huge Kurosawa fan, and it's definitely the culmination of his career in that movie. Before we go into the episode proper, I do want to make a couple quick corrections. Uh, one of our uh, listeners, Kaylee... And again, thank you, Kaylee, for going ahead and, and emailing us. And we always state at the end of our episodes, we are not always 100%. We're not always meant to be experts. We are here to love history and share history with you. Uh, but sometimes we, we make a mistake. So yeah. let's go ahead and fix uh, one from part one of this episode, right? So Etu Goofy, part one. I incorrectly stated that at the time of Pompey's death in Egypt, that he was still betrothed to Julia who was Julius Caesar's daughter. That was incorrect. Julia had died a few years before that in childbirth. Mm -hmm. And it was actually one of the leading reasons that the two of them, uh, that being Julius Caesar and Pompey, had their their break apart from each other, their schism with each other. So I I correct myself on that. And again, thank you very much, uh, Kaylee, for that correction. And also during the Caesarian Conception, I don't know which one of us who said it, but uh, we stated that uh, Julius Caesar's mother was by the name of Julia. And I think we just mixed that up because we were we meant to say daughter but we ended up saying mother uh and right. his mother it's, was actually really a kota understand really confused yeah but yes I, I, it was probably me i don't remember i don't, I don't remember it doesn't, you know it, regardless uh we just wanted to to state it for the thank you for, for clarifying that it's yes. actually easy to mix up roman names because the way they would name people especially females was okay if your name was Brianicus, for example. That's your your new Latin name. Uh, I you think that would name has your... to be his new name, because that is freaking amazing. Only if I could be Brianicus Patricius Maximus. There you go, Moriarty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gotta keep the uh, the Moriarty in. Um, for example, uh, you said Caesar's daughter was named Julia. Well, he probably you know that's sort of typical. So you might name your first daughter Brianna. Most female names were feminized, feminized versions of their yeah of their of their nomens. So okay, well once again again um, easy to confuse those name Roman names very yeah yeah very fun. So again, Kaylee, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. 
Uh, and we uh, we hope that uh, in this episode you keep a close ear as well. If there's anything uh, that we need to be corrected on, let us know. Fact checking is very important. Yes, we do. need those people in the um, world. Let's take a second here because I remember hearing months ago that <clears throat> someone used our podcast as a source in an academic paper, and I was <laughs> and I was flattered. But also terrified. <laughs> um, folks, we are a tertiary source of history at best. We are not, as much as that pains me to say, we are not a reasonable source to cite in a paper, unless it's a media paper on podcasting. In that sense, we are a primary source. <laughs> but our goal with this is entertainment. Right. We find history entertaining, and we're trying to do it in a way that entertains you guys, and you learn something at the same time. That's our mission with this podcast. And we're doing pretty well at that, I think. I think we are. Yeah. Please refrain from citing us in papers, because if the teacher were to do some fact-checking, well, one, they'll see that we have occasional errors, and no, we're not worried about that. But we're just, we're not connected enough with the material for the, your paper to be taken seriously at that point. And so it's to your benefit to go to better sources, the sources that we go to for our show. We, our podcasts are essentially audio papers, much longer, practically a thesis at this point, <laughs> with the amount of episodes we've done. So please go to those. Go to a library. Go to a museum. Let's let's go with some sources that that teacher yeah. will have an easier time checking. That's why yes. we always say don't take our word for it. Yeah. At the end of it, All I also right. promise to announce in my own sources that I brought. I brought a veritable library of dude. Thank you of, of books here, and I will tell you exactly what I'm reading from and, yeah, and this, when if I do do this so. This guy shows up at our house with literally a dozen books <laughs> on Roman. He's got tabs. This dude, he you are the most prepared guest. Well, this is actually only had. half of my Roman history collection because I left all my pre. Uh, uh, pre-imperial stuff yeah. at home. For the record, we've had a professor, college professor on our show before. You were the most prepared. Kathy is awesome. Kathy didn't need it. She had it all memorized. But right. Holy crap. I dude. have terrible memory, so I have to write it down and bookmark everything. So Otherwise, I'll forget it. I, I won't remember names. I won't ever remember dates. But you give me a book, I'll find it for you. I'm, I'm a really good yeah. researcher yeah. Uh, as opposed to someone who keeps all the facts yeah. in my head. And that's important because yeah. history isn't about dates. No, I mean, it's, it's about people. Bad history is about yeah. dates. It's about people and how they changed yeah. because of something happened, right? So, speaking of which, yes, let us carry on from where we left off. And where do we leave off, Eric? Last time we were talking about the decline of Julius Caesar and his eventual death. Mm. Uh, and now it is time to really focus a bit more on his successor, right? And the beginning of the quote-unquote Roman Empire. Mm. Okay, so now that we've transitioned away from The monarchical Roman Empire. Right. Now we've transitioned away from that traditional Republican view. Now we've moved over to something a little more... um, Unique. Sure. Let's go with unique. It's very different. Well, rather than say different, one of the interesting things that they did as far as a monarchy goes is the first you know dozen emperors or more sort of kept the trappings of a republic right they still pretended that they were just uh you know augustus was the first citizen among equals you know that's sort of how he presented himself to the senate and to the roman people they probably even though he was there for you know 44 years i believe that was the date please or the the time period i think it was 44 so if i'm wrong you know Kaylee can correct me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he was still putting out this air that, oh, we are the Republic. And I I have a feeling that the average pleb probably couldn't tell the difference. They were right. happy that their civil war was done. Yeah, and let's remember that for the lifetime of many of these people when Augustus came to power, mm-hmm. they hadn't known the traditional no. Republican system. That had all. been in a state of flux and... Uh, 
turmoil for for many many decades since about a hundred I want to say a hundred about a hundred BC Marius and uh, Sulla were going back and forth I mean they were they were dictators in their own right um, I believe Marius held the council or the the consulship like 10 years straight once. So, I yeah. mean, it, I, I, again, I could be wrong. This is all sort of uh, just coming from my, There's my bad memory. There's been political strife before where there were people who were functioning in very much the same way these early Caesars were, but they just they were doing it with uh, with no pretense. These yeah. guys were doing it maintaining peace but maintaining pretense. Well, there was the, the difference time. between a dictator in ancient Rome, in classical Rome, and someone who would be a monarch or a king or an emperor, whereas a dictator was sort of put into power by his peers to solve problems. Right. That was sort of what a dictator did in the ancient world. Whereas uh, emperors, they made it a divine right. Right. Okay. The, all the emperors were essentially deified upon death. And uh, you could put up a shrine if you wanted to for Augustus, and it would be perfectly okay yeah. to pray and worship to him. And if you're Julius or Augustus Caesar, they made a month out of two. So yes, that's, yes. That's pretty good. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, let us not forget that, that Augustus in particular played this game very, very well. And he did it to his advantage. Mm-hmm. He knew that if he stayed as modest as possible and tried to really calm the Senate and letting them know that, hey, I'm not here to rule absolutely. Mm-hmm. In fact, the powers that you're putting on me, most of them I don't even want. And the Senate was trying to throw quite a bit of, of weight his way. And he knew that he would still be able to wield it but he very publicly, very openly in front of the Senate, pretty much declared, "No, no, no, no! I'm, I'm not. I'm one to, of you. Yeah, I'm not going to take these powers. I'm not going to be above you. I'm going to be an equal to you." Knowing full well, totally ceremonial. Yeah, he was going to be able to wield that power because he had that weight behind him. Right. The, well, the, there's one. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, there's okay. one modern equivalent that I can think of, and that's uh, Putin in Russia. Everyone knows he's in charge. But here he is saying, "Oh, here's my prime minister. He's going to run the country for a yeah. while." And then he now, of course, he's back in charge. Later on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. It's this. It, it's very much, in, in my opinion, sort of the same thing. And I mean, it's kind of a weird parallel that I was actually only thinking about today. But you know, Soviet Union falls, it collapses. There's a lot of economic and political strife, yeah. and a strong man comes in and sorts it yeah. out. It's it's kind of sad because for Russia, democracy was essentially an experiment. They got Boris Yeltsin elected publicly by a majority. But then he died. I saw him in person once. Did you really? Yes. Uh, when I was like 12, I was in Washington, D.C. This is right before the fall of the Soviet Union. And he was uh, there at the um, the Lincoln Memorial the same time I was. So no we shit. had to wait for him. Sorry. <laughs> we had to no wait kidding. for him to like finish viewing it. And there's we have a picture of him. And it looks like he's waving right at our camera. It's really kind of interesting the only world leader i've ever seen in person in reality though he was just taking a swig of vodka because the glass yes. and the liquid were clear it, it would... looked like he was waving in your direction oh <laughs> one of yeah. my favorite there goes the russian audience <laughs> sorry one of my favorite late night skits though was boris yeltsin blowing out a birthday cake <laughs> and the whole thing just explodes in flame <laughs> that's great uh, I think that was Conan O'Brien. I believe no. it was Conan. Yeah. 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 Um, well, anyway, I mean, they were an experiment because the immediate president who preceded him was Vladimir Putin, who was also elected, but then he's like, oh, great, I'm in power. Let's do away with all that. <clears throat> yep. KGB. Former yep. KGB. KGB. And no one batted an eyelash. Like, did anyone else find this just a little suspicious that a former KGB man is going to be running the government now? Anyway, um, we don't want the Russian ninjas to come and uh, no. <laughs> attack us in the night. So... Uh, Fascinating enough uh, about uh, Russia. Sometimes you'll see on uh, old the old Russian flags for the the monarchy. You'll see a, a two headed eagle. Mm-hmm. That is the Byzantine eagle. Again, they called themselves czars 
Which is derivative of Caesar. Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, the whole Orthodox religion and stuff that also connects them. So they actually see themselves as an extension. Sure. Well, look at the Kaiser uh, of Germany, right? Yeah, Kaiser is another derivative of Caesar. Holy right. Roman Empire, mm-hmm. you know, stuff right. like that. Um, so. Plenty of other dictators have claimed yes. the, the, um, the moniker of Caesar because Caesar was the first, I guess, successful, if you want to call it that, even though he was assassinated. Um, well, look at, look at all-powerful uh, Western yeah, emperor. Napoleon sure. was crowned with laurel wreaths. Yes. Exactly. And there's that, that famous portrait of him that shows him essentially more or less emulating Augustus Caesar. Mm-hmm. Right? Imposing and everything. Yeah, yeah Mussolini. Mussolini yep. He, even though he didn't have that kind of ceremony, I mean, he claimed that he was going to bring Italy back to the glory of the Roman Empire, right? That was his, that was his claim upon taking... Well, the term fascism actually comes from a Roman term called the fascus, right. which is a bound-up... Um, uh, it's, a, it's like an sticks. axe with yeah. Uh, yeah it, there's an axe and it's bound by several rods and uh there was a position and I forgot the actual rank or the the title of the person who carries the the fascus um when they carry it they're actually if if someone's breaking a law they can take one of those rods and beat you with it gotcha <laughs> Well, yeah. speaking of Roman-like, let, let, let's get back to Augustus, because Augustus, really, of, of all of his, uh, his successors, was, in my opinion, probably the most successful in what he really did. Mm. And he brought this term that would become very characteristic of those first hundred years of Rome, Pax Romana, Pax so Romana. peace in Rome. And he really did it very effectively, and he did it honestly by emulating Julius Caesar in one aspect and controlling the military, and in particular controlling his own personal guard, the Praetorian Guard, Mm -hmm. which he created under his reign that was literally the foundation for the Praetorian Guard for the rest of Mm -hmm. of Roman history, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were the ones who oftentimes uh, either kept the emperor in power or uh, made sure that he was... Or took him out of power. Yeah, exactly. Took him out and made sure someone else in power. A very, very powerful position in, in all of Rome. Augustus is an interesting figure. Well, I have a quote from Augustus. This is sort of his, uh, what he wanted to be remembered for. May I be privileged to build firm and lasting foundations for the government of the state. May I also achieve the reward to which I aspire, that of being known as the author of the best possible constitution and of carrying with me when I die the hope that these foundations which I have established for the state will abide secure. And that's sort of his philosophy with what he was doing with Rome. He just wanted to make Rome great and make Rome perpetuate. Rome was already great, but he wanted it to last forever. He wanted stability. Right, Right. stability. And that's what, you know, he, again, we talked about this, he grew up in a time without stability. Absolutely. So for him, like most Roman emperors, uh, you know, the power was kind of thrust on him. It came to him because of a relationship that he had. And through his experiences, he realized that he had to do something rather than, well sit by the wayside yeah, which he well, could have done he could have very easily done that and let mark antony sure. run things and he was well he was very tired keep in mind you know here he is after the wake that was left that power vacuum that was left in place when julius caesar died he's a teenager too yeah when this starts kid. yeah uh going ahead and leading and and fighting and winning a civil war mm-hmm. and then eventually having to partner and then break off and fight another war against his former partner Mac- marcus antonius yeah and, again, bring a, a sense of stability to the Roman Empire. So he had to do it twice, really. And he was probably exhausted at this point. He We're, simply wanted to be able to relax and enjoy Rome for what it was. He actually fought five civil wars. Wow. Yeah, five different civil wars. And the people were just constantly coming up against him. I'll just read this quote. This quote is straight out of The Twelve Caesars by Suetonius. 
Uh, Roman and, historian. Yeah. And this is actually, this is in uh, Suetonius, uh, this is Augustus uh, 9, and this is the second paragraph. Uh, he fought five civil wars in all, associated respectively with the names of Mutina, Philippi, Perugia, Sicily, and Actium. Those of Mutina and Actium were against Antony, uh, that of Philippi against Brutus and Cassius, that of Perugia against Antony's brother Lucius, that of Sicily against Sextus, uh, Sextus Pompeius, son of Pompey the Great. Well, I actually wrote a paper about, not much known about Sextus Pompey, but... Uh, Interesting. I, Sextus Pompey was the greatest pirate of his age. Huh. Essentially, these wars mm -hmm. were mostly the cleanup of the mess that they had started when they tried to assassinate Caesar. Right. Right. Uh, um, before those wars were fought, there was a period called the Second Triumvirate, and that was Mark Antony making an alliance with Octavian and the Pontifex Maximus of the day, which was... Uh, Mark the religious Ant leader of the... Lepidus, yeah, mm -hmm. who was sort of a pushover. He was just included for his... I want to say his uh, his station that he was at, and the fact once he got on, once you get sort of the religious order on your side, you right. Like, look, Marcus Lepidus, I need to do some stuff to make Rome okay, and I just I need you just to go with it and make everybody okay with it. Well, Lepidus was a general right. also, so you know, like most Roman aristocrats, they all had military experience. Right. Most of these people weren't real pushovers, but, though. Marcus Lepidus so kind of like, was. I don't know, man. I just don't, well. Uh, look, I'll give you a small pony. All right, fine. Let's go. <laughs> Let's do this. A small pony? <laughs> Only a small pony? Large pony or no deal? Lepidus actually got lucky because in the end he was only exiled. Oh, good. Oh, good so he did not get killed at, at the end of these civil wars. He just got exiled. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just got cold and homeless. Yeah, but other pretty much. Fine. Well, he was exiled sort of to like a retirement island, so it wasn't, too, it wasn't a terrible exile. Oh, kind of like what we do with our elders when we send them. Yes, I wonder exactly. if they had the Roman equivalent of Jello there. <laughs> okay, <anyway>. Bocce ball. <laughs> right. They might have. Yeah. Bocce so, ball is an ancient sport. Well, let, let's skip forward for a second. <laughs> let's go to Tiberius for a second, because in many ways, Tiberius is the exact opposite of Augustus. Whereas Augustus, yes, it was thrust upon him, this greatness, but he then took it and ran with it and did so highly successfully and was well aware of his abilities and wanted to make sure that he stayed in a peaceful and stable Rome for as long as, as humanly possible. So same mission, but a total different approach. Well, no, I, I'd say Tiberius had a totally different mission in him of himself and that he didn't want anything to do with this. Mm -hmm. He was, again, adopted into this family. I mean, he really wasn't even blood-related. He was related by marriage. Octavian's wife had a son from a former marriage, and he was Tiberius, and Tiberius was adopted by Augustus, because essentially there was nobody else. And Tiberius was actually pretty well advanced in age when he came to power. I mean, this was somebody who, who didn't want to deal with the politics of Rome. He didn't want to deal with the vacuum that was left and the high expectations, extraordinarily high expectations. And when he comes before the Senate for the first time, he more or less tries to play the same card that Augustus does, but everyone looks right through him. He doesn't have the convincibility. He does not have the, the aura that Augustus had. His ability as an orator was legendary. I mean, he was, he was well known for being able to convince and, and calm you and, and let you know that everything was going to be okay no matter what. Whereas Tiberius was more of a bumbler with his words. And he was not someone who instilled confidence. Hi, folks. So, <laughs> um, I, I, I'm so pleased to be taken over the the, the empire. And um, so, uh, I just I, wanted to let you know that um, 
things are going to be great. Yeah. And, in fact, uh, I brought cupcakes. Um, yeah. And don't worry bring, about bring, this whole... Bring the cupcakes in. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, don't worry about this whole absolute power business. I'm not... It's just... It's... um. It just comes with a job. And, you know, I'm I'm not even going to use most of those powers. Except and, for maybe making more cupcakes. We'll have plenty and, of cupcakes. Uh, yeah. Cupcakes. Yeah. Oh, we don't have the cupcakes? We don't... Right. Uh, <laughs> but I think my point is here that, that Tiberius was this person who just wanted nothing to do with it. And more or less voluntarily exiled himself, really. Because <laughs> he left Rome. He's just like, I'll go over here now. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. He went ahead and he got out of Dodge and decided that he would go to the island of Capri and he would just kind of relax there and vacation there. And that was going to be his, his permanent vacation spot. He didn't want to have to deal with the troubles that were Rome. He left that in charge of other people, who, for the most part, did a pretty decent job, but uh, some of them had aspirations that uh, went above and beyond that, and that's what really pulled him back in. Sejanus, who was uh, left in charge, more or less, as Tiberius went off to Capri. Mm -hmm. Uh, What have you got on Sejanus? What have you got on Tiberius for us? There's a lot of interesting things that I've read. He was was very heavy-handed. That's how he kept control. I mean, here's an example of something he would do. Uh, An ancient Roman custom was revived by Tiberius, the punishment of married women guilty of improprieties. I mean, he was very much like, oh, a moral police officer. He wanted to do a lot of traditional stuff. And that's one thing I do know about Tiberius, is that in order to kind of make his own path, is that he was a little a little more heavy-handed. Which than, is usually indicative of a leader who doesn't have as much confidence in his role yeah. as his predecessor. Which is so ironic, because later historians uh, within contemporary Rome, right, so we're talking about a couple hundred years after his life, they cited him as someone who had a passion for depravity, uh, mm. who, in particular, to sexual depravity, uh, <laughs> and turned the island of Capri into his own orgy fest. Yeah. And, almost the exact opposite for everything that uh, he kind of more or less stood for or enforced. He had this very hypocritical attitude about himself, assuming we believe the propaganda of the time, which is very hard to say because we don't have a whole lot more information other than that about his personal life, other than the the rumor that is passed on to us by later generations. You can kind of assume a lot of these things by how many children did these people have? And there's really a string of emperors that just don't have successors. And uh, later on, when hereditary inherit, you know, inheritance becomes very important to the, to the imperial line, uh, when these people start having children, that's when, in my opinion, uh, a lot of Rome kind of goes downhill because, uh, you know, we'll probably talk about it later, but you'll get a Marcus Aurelius and then you'll get his actual son, Commodus. Before we get to the Antonine emperors, who were the kind of crazy wild emperors that we had during this era? From, oh, from Tiberius on, because we had some we had some uh, corkers, didn't we? So Tiberius is very interesting because Tiberius Tiberius really greatly influenced the life of his successor, uh, a Roman emperor who would go down in history for being just his name would conjure up terrible, horrible images mm-hmm. of of tyranny and and death and destruction and awful, awful things. And this is of course Caligula. Now, what's interesting, though, is that Tiberius really shaped the Caligula that would become. And I think he did so without even knowing what he was doing. Because Tiberius was such a moral, almost draconian, not to actually invoke Draco, but um, such a draconian moral force. Caligula was kind of the, the opposite of that. He's like, oh, just let's just do everything. 
It's interesting that that parallel develops, but I think what I mean by influencing his life is by the various people that Tiberius had killed who were essential to Caligula's development as a child. Ah. Caligula, Go on. Whose, whose name literally just means Little Boots, that's just his, that's his nickname that he was given, uh, was the son of a very famous Roman general by the name of Germanicus. And Germanicus... Germanicus? Germanicus. He uh, was... Not Germanicus. No. <laughs> I can't tell if you're saying Germanicus or Dramaticus, because, like, Dramaticus, that's, like, the best Roman general name ever. Germanicus. I am General Dramaticus. <laughs> I enter and I talk like this. Big entrances every time. <laughs> We're going to invade this small country here. Okay, good. Do we have pyrotechnics? <laughs> I want them to just be big. He enters like a professional wrestler when he hits the exactly. field. You know, fire, music, Get everything. And always, and always from stage left. Yes. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Germanicus. Germanicus. Okay, Germanicus. Whose campaigns in Germanica, okay, so in the, the provinces in the north that would later become Germany, uh, of course, were legendary. He was, in many ways, a threat. So it's no big surprise that he met with a, an unfortunate end. It is believed quite possibly that Germanicus could have been poisoned, a plot orchestrated possibly by Tiberius. This is all... Yes, nobody knows entirely for sure. But we do know that later on, most certainly Tiberius had a huge and influential effect on Caligula's life and that he forcefully exiled Caligula's mother and literally murdered off and killed off Caligula's many of his siblings, uh, except for a few of Caligula's sisters, uh, the closest to him, Drusilla, who he would later, this being Caligula, carry on uh, a rather interesting relationship with. By interesting, you mean... Sexual. So, Uh, incest. Yeah, incestuous. And uh, (laughs) all of this is done to this poor little mascot of the army, who was beloved by his people, and later, as a young adult, would then be called into the the court of Tiberius, and called specifically to Capri, where he would live with his great-grand-uncle, being that Caligula was his great-grand-nephew. Uh, and now we have this declining Tiberius who's disdain, disdainful of Rome, who wants nothing to do with it, then dies and leaves this young, charismatic Caligula to walk into Rome for the very first time. He had never even been to Rome. So he became emperor and never even... Never even stepped foot in the city before. Wow. So yes. this is what it's like, huh? Yeah. But nice. what's most incredible is that he was welcomed by crowds and crowds of cheering fans because he was so well known as this little mascot this little these little boots uh that he had a reputation that preceded him and he was able to waltz into rome and and to great fanfare and it seems that for the first couple of years caligula rocked it he did a good job he was well liked by the people he was well liked by his his peers and then we have a change in caligula Caligula is said to have suffered from a, a terrible illness and had kind of reclined into obscurity for a few months. Dare we say syphilis? Well, there's a lot of theories. Um, Isn't one of the theories lead poisoning? Lead poisoning is one of them. Syphilis is another. But bipolar disorder is probably the one that makes the most sense. Interesting. So this that is when it started to manifest. One, yeah. yeah. When you think about it, when you think about some of our more recent serial killers and people who are truly sociopathic... Uh, they believe their own lies, they create their own image around themselves that they believe to be true, Mm. they tend to be very charismatic people, like the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, for example. In reality, they're horrible monsters that have no moral compass. Yeah, I know, exactly, right? (laughs) Uh, And it's true, though, he really was. And so it's not beyond the realm of reason to suggest that Caligula very likely suffered from a serious 
mental condition, whereas when he first came into Rome, was able to play the part. He was able to be that person that people wanted him to be because he believed it. Mm. And very quickly, though, his psychosis became more and more apparent. Was he really ill and taken to being bed-stricken, or was he simply taken away from the public light because he was having a serious psychotic breakdown, which would then later eventually become what he was known for, the remainder of his reign, this reign of terror. When you talk about a person who is playing the part and had this traumatic things happen to him when he's young, I immediately start thinking of Dexter, mm. Uh, mm. the show from Showtime that also Fantastic had, series. Yeah, and for those who don't know, it's about a boy who witnesses his mother's murder at a very, very young age. Um, and then starts to show the signs of serial killer tendencies, you know, mutilating animals and so forth as a child. And his adopted father, who is a cop, teaches him to use this illness in a weird way toward good. So what he ends up doing is he ends up, he's still a serial killer, but he only kills people who broke the law and got away with it. His smell fell through the system of the law enforcement. And not just broke the law, but yeah. they're typically really terrible people. Yeah, right. they're truly terrible. He only killed one person, innocent by accident once and he never did that again because he actually he's not fully a psychopathic he does have a conscience he just doesn't isn't aware that he has one it's one of those really deep hey, it's, a, it's a great show it's a wonderful yeah. show um, it is available on Netflix it is available on iTunes and lots of other resources where you can get it I'm sure there's a Showtime app you can watch it on yeah it's totally worth it a great great writing great mm-hmm. acting um, but I see this parallel to Caligula because you see this allegory kind of take shape yeah. And, of course, Dexter wasn't running Rome, so... Here's something interesting in uh, Suetonius. This is, uh, again, the Twelve Caesars, which does go through the first Twelve Caesars. Uh, though I believe it actually does start with Gaius Julius Caesar. So, yeah, which it does. Uh, in this one, there's a short description of Caligula, the way he looked, and then there's a little sentence I'm going to read afterwards. But his height was called tall, complexion pallid, so he's a nice pale guy, body Hairy and badly built. Uh, Neck thin. Legs spindling. This is an ancient description, by the way. Uh, Eyes and temples hollow. Forehead broad and forbidding. Scalp almost hairless, especially on the top. Now here's the little phrase after. Because of his baldness and hairiness, he announced that it was a capital offense for anyone either to look down on him as he passed or to mention goats in any context. (laughs) (laughs) So his sanity is really a display just in that one edict. Still, though, Suetonius is writing after the fact. Yes. And of all the contemporary historians, no one ever wrote anything about we may have suppressed the media. Caligula. <laughs> well, here's an interesting thing, though. Suetonius, you, you got to understand that ancient writers had their biases also. And at that point, if Nero was considered kind of vile during his age, he, of course, is going to write sure. these things. He's not going to go against what everyone else is sort of thinking unless he has an agenda. And there are certain things that happen that are hard to deny because of the amount of people who are involved in them. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing a story of Caligula marching an army to... Western Europe to the mm-hmm. to what is now modern day France with mm-hmm. the with the hopes and intent to invade Britain. Oh yes, this is a good one. I think I know where you're going with this. But instead, once they reach the island and they ask him, his generals ask him, "Well, how shall we proceed with the the invasion?" Mm-hmm. He says, "There shall be no invasion. Have everyone gather up seashells." Ah uh, yes. And it's like <laughs> okay, sure. 
And with, if you think about the sheer number of people involved... <laughs> yes, it's a lot of seashells. There, <laughs> there is a lot of seashells. Uh, I mean, they could they could stock the vast majority of vendors in Santa Cruz for, for ages to come. But they... Shell art is so over, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, man. Real, it's live, man. Um, but what's interesting is that if that didn't happen... That would be one heck of a thing to keep secret. Well, do you to make know, up, to make up and keep secret? You know. Do you well, know what he no did with those it. seashells? They brought them back, and he staged a triumph for himself. And he claimed that he invaded uh, the ocean and Neptune, and he conquered Neptune. Well, he was taken to fancies of actually calling himself Jupiter and yeah. believing that he was the god Jupiter. Well, and, and again, this is—I mean, when the two previous emperors had been deified. Uh, of course, it's not going to be a stretch of the imagination for you to think, well, I am also a god. So yeah. you are the human version of of a god. Yes. Well, he actually started building projects to com- to connect the, the temple of Jupiter with the residence of mm-hmm. the emperor, uh, just so he had a place to walk over and become god. Pray to himself. Yeah. So no big surprise that the uh, Praetorian Guard would uh, eventually get rid of Caligula. And after, what is it, only about four years in power, I think it was. Yeah, he didn't reign very long. In fact, I don't think the... Besides, I don't think uh, many of the emperors reigned for a very uh, long time. Three years and ten months, it there says. There you go. He was killed by the uh, the head of Praetorian Guard. Well, I just, it's so funny to say, one of his earliest edicts, you may not look down on me, never mind that he's tall, and it's hard that you have to be looking up at him, but also, you should never mention goats. Bam. Who did that? And Who did just, it? And then I just imagine the pause room. All Why? the goats, kill him! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kill him now. Kill him. That leads us to Claudius. I think Claudius is fascinating. Claudius is another one of those emperors who never wanted to become emperor, who was literally hiding behind a curtain yes. when he was told that he would become emperor. And that's why he was hiding, because he was afraid he would be killed. Yeah. Yeah. He, he did not want the job in any way, shape, or form. And he, again, another nephew to Tiberius, not a great nephew like Caligula was, but a nephew. So he was already, again, more advanced in age. And uh, here's someone who had been kind of a joke to his family. He was really not well-liked. He was certainly not considered to be the next person to become emperor. In fact, they used to make fun of him. And there are some ancient historians that record that as he would partake in certain gatherings and parties, he would tend to uh, fall asleep. He wasn't terribly interested in all the activities. And they would sometimes take the sandals off of his feet and put them on his hands. And then he would awaken to scratch his face or what have you, and he hit himself with a shoe. If only they had shaving cream or markers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would be a completely different story. Roman frat party jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Toga party? Yeah. Kind of an awkward person. He tended to, to spittle and spit when he when he spoke, and he wasn't very refined in that sense. He didn't seem very uh, very upper class or regal. He seemed kind of a an oaf or clod, a if pleb. you will. Yeah. <laughs> Yet he goes on and becomes of that Judeo Claudian line one of the more successful emperors and does a very very good job at administering the country. So much so that the British made a really interesting miniseries back in the in the 70s called I, Claudius. Very, very well done. I want to say it was something like 14 or 15 parts. It was about average of what you would expect from like a... A British miniseries? Yeah, like yeah. a British series, yeah. So yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, and you know, it was uh, really well done. It even holds up to its time. And obviously there is a lot of poetic license that was taken with it, but... Uh, they do look to Suetonius and, and other chroniclers of, of his life and try to base it off of that as best they can. 
Uh, and it's well worth watching. So folks out there who haven't seen it already, check out iClaudius. It's actually a very interesting watch. Hmm. I'll say the last of this line that you know exists, and the last, and this is kind of where we'll leave it, and we'll jump a little bit more forward into mm-hmm. into Rome proper. But Nero, we talked about Nero a little bit, a one little of our previous bit. episodes. The, the we talked about it in the Caesarian conception because of the famous misnomer that he played the fiddle as Rome was burning. Well, first of all, according to the the annals by Tacitus, there were no such thing as as fiddles yeah. in that time period. <laughs> it would have at best been a liar that he was playing, but also as batshit as we, we like to say that he was, he was still emperor, and you know, if Rome was burning, he would have been concerned as a head of state up with the well-being of the city, and he was concerned with getting everybody, including himself, out of the city, though I think he actually, he stayed in Rome and let, let himself burn around it. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, folks. Well, fires in ancient Rome were kind of a, a fascinating thing, yeah. because there's no fire department, okay? There are fire brigades that might be loosely organized to get together when there's a fire to put out your house. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you discussed this uh, the last time, but uh, one of the original members of the first triumvirate was a guy named Crassus, who uh, might be considered the richest person in the ancient world. He was extremely wealthy. The Bill Gates of his time. More like the more like a Donald Trump. Oh, because okay. he was like a he, he. This is he had this great scheme. So he had terrible hair, is what you're trying to say. Possibly. Well, he was he was killed by the king of Parthia, allegedly by having molten gold poured down his throat. Oh wow! Yes, that. So uh, anyhow, what, what I was getting to was he had a great scam going on. Again, ancient Rome has no economic laws, really. I mean, if you're a patrician, you can essentially do whatever you want with your money. And so what he would do is, when a house was on fire, he would take his own private fire brigade. He would go to that house and he would say, "Look, sell me your house, and we'll save it." And as the house is burning, uh, if they didn't accept that offer, <laughs> he would start lowballing them and drop it until they're like, "Okay, fine." save my house so I can at least get my belongings or save my baby or whatever's in there. And that's how he made a lot of money. So he would buy people's houses while they're on fire, on the cheap, and then sell them <laughs> after he's done something else to them. He was incredibly uh Folks, flipping terrible. houses goes back as far as the Roman Empire. <laughs> right. And th- this is why we need a fire department and uh, not, you know, private fire brigades. That's yeah. a bad idea. <laughs> Such a bad idea. Well, yeah. I don't want to talk too much about Nero. I mean, he was an interesting character, but but there's not a whole lot really written about him besides his affinity for killing his mother and... And, and so, persecuting Christians. And persecuting Christians. Yes, that which, was... We're now in the era, with really with, with Augustus, we're in an era where now... Yeah, Jesus Christ was born under, under Augustus. The, under the, the reign of Augustus, right. And so... I think a lot of people forget that... I mean, they know that in that story that there are Romans, but I don't think they understand the full... I don't think a lot of people who read biblical stories grasp the full cultural impact of Rome. Exactly. And sort of the history of that. And right. I think there's a lot of probably misconceptions. Right. And so, at this point in time, Christianity had started to spread... Through the empire, in no small part thanks to St. Peter, because St. Peter and Paul as well both went to Rome, and their goal was to preach the gospel from that that era. And that's why the Pope is considered the Bishop of Rome, because he is a successor of Peter. Peter established Rome as the hub of the church, essentially. So, um, no surprise. Of course, it was all clandestine, because the Romans didn't like the Christians that much, not until Constantine. No, they did not. In fact, the, they oftentimes used them as uh, as bait for animals in the uh, gladiatorial yeah. games. Well, this, the, 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 you know, the persecution of Christians, I think, happened, really happened 
a little later, uh, closer to the time of, uh, say, like Diocletian. Diocletian, um, for Diocletian sure. was definitely anti-Christian. Well, there's yes. a horrible story supposedly surrounding Nero and that uh, he wanted to gain some light in his garden in the evening. And so right. he had some Christian slaves brought in uh, and set a fire. Yeah, but it's it's worth noting, though, that most of the books that were written that were in the official canonical Bible mm-hmm. were the last of those books, the book of Revelation, was composed during Nero's reign. Uh, it's believed it was written by John of Patmos, who was a Greek. And in fact, when they talk about the beast rising from the sea with the number 666 on it, that was all figurative language. It was mm-hmm. not intended to be interpreted literally. 666 was the code that Christians used for Nero. Um, oh, there you go. The beast was the per- their persecution and that God was eventually going to free these people from their persecution. It was a tale to give the Christians hope in a sense of when there was no hope. As a non-Christian here, I would like to add, though, I do think that some of the Christian persecution stuff is really overplayed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it is made up. Particularly the story about Nero burning Christians in his Right, like the one you just told, I think that's probably rubbish. I don't think it is probably true. He probably did burn people like that, but uh, specifically Christians... I don't know. Maybe there's a Christian in the bunch. It, there. It's Sorry, hard. So. It's hard for me to see Rome as explicitly persecuting Christians until they uh, refuse to do things like, "Oh, okay, well, now you have to pay tax to worship the emperor" or right. something well, like well, that. Correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but the big issue that there was the point of contention was the same point of contention that the Egyptians had with the Hebrews, which is that the Romans had gotten into the practice of deifying their leader. Yeah. And the Christians and the Hebrews both believe in deifying their God and their God only. Yes. So because, even though the Christians were saying they'd be willing they would full pay Roman taxes, citizens, yeah. they would not bow to the emperor as a God. Yes. And that's where they took issue. And yes. that is where that's the exactly where they place. took. That's exactly. Because for the most part, if you think about it, the state religion of Rome has multiple gods. And, and, and really, uh, a lot of people, you know, when Constantine sort of decided to take Christianity on... Early on, it was like he added Jesus Christ to this pantheon, right? Yeah. Rather than we're converted. Well, Rome had been a mixing pot its entire history. Yeah. And when you were conquering any large group of people, mm-hmm. lots of different countries, lots of different beliefs, mm-hmm. it makes more sense to more or less adjust yeah. to their traditions and beliefs and try to instill some of yourself within them, but not completely replace it. The Egyptians were extremely good at this. Well. Yeah, and, and a, a typical sort of classical view of ancient gods was, I have these gods, and you have these gods, but look, your god does this, and my god does this. Right. They're the same god, we just worship them under different names. And that is the typical belief of the ancient world, was that, at least the, the Roman world was, mm-hmm. well, they have these gods, they're different names, but Thor is a lot like Zeus, Okay, and they did interact with the Germans up there, and they—that's—that's yep. that's something that they—they they saw, and they—they, they, you know, cross-cultural parallel development, folks. We talked about it numerous times in this. Yeah, and, and but that's an, that's really a, a common belief. So, I wouldn't see them necessarily persecuting Christians on the f- basis that they believe in one God. It's that again, they wouldn't worship the deified Caesars. Well, here we are, two thousand years later, later, and Nero is still burning, but yeah. only burning CDs. <laughs> and DVDs. <laughs> well Thank done. you. Thank you. Sad trombone sound. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I find really fascinating about the fire of Rome is much the way that fire works in nature. The Native Americans, for example, throughout California used to perform controlled burns. 
right? So they would burn away all the brush, all the debris, all the things that were making it more difficult to live on. And with the remnants, with what was left behind, they built something sturdier, stronger, more sustaining for their people. And the Rome, the Great Fire of Rome, is very much exactly that. Hmm. So much of the city burnt down, but what came out of it was this whole new rebuilding effort. And with it became this renewed sense of, let's build Rome bigger and better. This was... Now, Rome 2.0. Rome 2.0. It was no longer the Rome That would be of... Constantinople, really. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true. This, so yeah. this is Rome 1.5. Sure. This is the beta version. Yeah. yeah. We, we, uh, we've worked out most of the major bugs, and we put a new flashy user interface <laughs> on it. <laughs> the Rome of stone was now dead. The Rome of marble was now just beginning. Yeah. And with this would come some of Rome's greatest building projects, including, of course, the Great Colosseum mm-hmm. in Rome, which would begin after all of this. Um, Circus Maximus, of course. Yeah. And you'll find that the development of concrete in Rome was now being used in a whole new level because now they had all this ash and debris and Mm -hmm. all of this remnants of stone that had been heated by the fires that had crumbled and now turned not quite to dust, but it was more or less like volcanic sand is and how that's used to create really great concrete. Now they had all these building materials nearby, and they realized that their concrete, which before they had really just used as mortar, could be a standalone strong material by itself and rome was rebuilt quickly and was done so in such an amazing way that you know much of it still stands today ancient rome yeah that's crazy i think as a side note since you mentioned the Colosseum, being the theater not that i am and we'll be having a good degree in it very shortly the Colosseum, which of course we now we talk about gladiatorial combat too a new form of entertainment were two theaters literally that's all it were mm-hmm. facing each other literally that's all the circus maximus is it's the same layout an architectural schematics as an amphitheater, mm. just double-sided, basically. And an incredible technological marvel. The innovation that they built into that, the various chambers and corridors and cages. The vomitoria, as they called them. Which the vomitoria. Where the comes from, yeah. Exactly. Ah, yes. Uh, beneath the, the staged area were incredibly designed, extremely intricate, to the point where they think, and they only think this, they can't prove it, but they believe that there were times when they actually flooded the Colosseum. Oh, absolutely. And, that's true. That's yeah. true. They, they would reenact sea battles. Well, there are some people who today now state that it, it may not have been technologically possible. I think it probably would I have. think so as well. Uh, because they were able to use the main aqueduct of Rome to pump something like 80,000 gallons of water uh, in a matter of hours and fill yeah. up that entire lower level there and, and be able to have these incredible right. you know, Romans uh, had battles. plumbing. Romans not only that, had not only that but Very Romans, good yes. we covered that in our episode yeah, on toilets. Not only that, but Romans <laughs> also had air conditioning in the Colosseum. So this is fascinating. Very much like in the opera, the higher seats were the better seats. Mm. So what would happen is they'd have these sheets that mm-hmm. were laid over these portions of it, and they would have slaves drip water onto the sheets and then fan them. And in that process of moistening it, they're forced, that air forces it to be cooled. Mm. I don't quite know the thermodynamics behind it, but basically by doing that, by forcing that cool air down and the hot air rising up, you basically create this air-conditioned zone. It's called a slave-powered swamp cooler. It's like what they do at the grocery stores when they mist everything, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the ancient right. Egyptians did the same thing. Yeah. They would build uh, very shallow pools in their gardens. And, of course, they would be, you know, containing a wide variety of fish. Yeah. But the real purpose of them was for the air that would come over these rounded-topped walls that would get stuck in and, and create a vacuum. And it would then be circulating around the garden as it would move over the surface of the water it would evaporate and move that cool air and it would continue in this cycle and would make this 
cooler environment for them. Right? There's no way ancient people could have done that. It must have been aliens. It had to have been aliens. Well, naturally. <laughs> yeah. all, all great technological marvels of the ancient world were done by extraterrestrials, who themselves were yes. also Atlanteans. Yes. Um, <laughs> from the hollow earth. Yes. <laughs> Taking a moment to talk about <clears throat> the technological advances of Rome. So we talked about plumbing. They talked about concrete. They also had a barge at one point that was heated. Unbelievable! They actually had heated floors, and it came from rods that they had burning from from uh, yeah. from coal underneath it. It was unbelievable the amount of comfort, the amount of luxury they had managed to get for themselves. Caligula was said to have had these massive ships, mm-hmm. two of which which he sailed on. Gosh, I cannot remember the name of the lake now. I'm sure there's somebody out there who would know it. And we'll, screaming we'll, it right now in the car. Uh, to us. We'll have to cite it in, in the next episode because I, I I will find the name for it. But they had drained this lake in an attempt to find you know any remnants of ancient Rome. Uh, this was done back I want to say in like the 1920s or 30s, and they found the the ribs that made up these massive ships, and they were huge, and they were essentially these massive pleasure barges. Uh, one of them was a temple. Mm. And a floating the, temple, a yes. floating temple, and then the other was a floating palace, essentially, and they were absolutely huge. And unfortunately, I believe both, if not one of them, maybe just one of them, I think both of them were destroyed in an air raid during the Second World War. But the pictures that survive just show you the scale hmm. of oh how gosh. massive these things I were. I was like, I wonder why they sank. Well, they were quite big and they were quite luxurious, but they didn't quite get the floating part down too well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a really good party one night, and well, yeah, anyway. Yeah, Rome was absolutely technologically advanced. I was watching an episode of Nova last night on the world's first computer, uh, which they believe had been developed actually by the Greeks, but versions of it had left, had survived, and ended up on a Roman ship and then sank to the bottom of the ocean, uh, where they have since I've, discovered it. I've seen, I've seen that artifact. They don't really know what it was for. I don't think, Ooh, right? They do yeah. now. Or they do now. Okay. Well, talking about talking about everyone who knows the show knows I'm a gnomon file. The word computer up until the early 20th century when they made what we know of as computers, the word computer meant was a job for someone who was a calculator, someone mm. who was able to crunch numbers very, very quickly and efficiently. And that's technically really all a computer does. It just does uh, a lot of calculations really yeah, quickly. Exactly. And those we just have interpreted those to do cool things like edit movies and yeah. create photographs and all those nice zero things. Zero one zero one 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 zero. I don't know what that means in binary, but it probably means a lot of yeses right. and nos. Well, this, yeah. this ancient computer... That was yeah, that thing. very much of a Greek design, but later carried over onto, they believe, most likely a, a ship during pre-Roman Empire, right? So again, in the the time period right mm-hmm. after, um, right, right, right before Julius Caesar, few few decades before Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. But uh, this fascinating device was a a computer for predicting future solar eclipses. And it had a wide variety of different gears, all working together, highly complex machine uh, that very accurately calculated not just the distance from the Earth from the moon and the way that it rotates around the Earth, but even the elliptical orbit that the moon has, Hmm. in addition to the Earth and the moon's relation to the sun, all able to predict within accuracy to the hour a solar eclipse that could occur Years in advance. We're just going to say, because, of course, when the Empire collapsed, we had the Dark Ages, we wouldn't see a mechanical device like this for at least 1,500 years, if not more. Probably not until, I don't know, the Renaissance? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And they had this during the peak of the Roman Empire and it, or before that. And so just to show that unless something bad happens, like a massive war or a collapse of a society... 
We could have had computers 2,000 years ago. How crazy is that to think about? That is pretty awesome. Uh, and for those of you who are wondering what it is known as, it's been now since titled the Antikythera Mechanism. And uh, I'll show you gentlemen a picture of it. You folks can find it online. And this is, of course, the compacted bronze uh, remains of it. But they have used very, very powerful x-rays to view through it and be able to count all the individual teeth on every single gear. And they've recreated, both virtually and, and physically, recreations of the device. And it's amazing. And on the flip side of it, because on one side was this great tool for predicting you know, the future of, of eclipses. On the other side Monopoly. was a working... <laughs> no, it was actually checkers. Oh, uh, It was a working uh, planetarium. Essentially, it showed you the exact motion and movement of the planets up to Saturn, of course, because that's all that was known at the time, in relation to the Earth, the Earth being the center, because they thought that was the center of the uh, solar system and universe. Uh, even incorporating the phases of the moon with a little spinning marble that had the different faces of the moon on it that could move along with it. It was fascinating. Fascinating. So brand new Nova special out on that. Check it out. Blew my mind. Super, super cool. Had to mention it. Even though it was actually a Greek invention, it did carry over in the Romans. Did most likely perpetuate it and continue to use it. But uh, I had to. No, that is absolutely mind blowing. It's fascinating. We've been talking a lot about now how Rome was rebuilt and talking a lot about uh, some of the things that the Roman people would have had uh, that we don't really conceive of because we think of, you know, a very austere lifestyle, very, I don't want to say primitive because prim- to me primitive means like cavemen. Yeah. Uh, and no civilization has ever been really primitive in that no. sense. The Romans were, you know, they had a class system in place. They were a brutal people. Yeah. Um, they were a warlike people. I mean, let's let's not... They took their cues from Sparta. Sparta was an inspiration to them. Well, well, let's not. I mean, we let's not beat around the bush. Their first, you know, the first five hundred years of their existence was essentially the conquering of Italy, uh, and and a lot of it was because of, uh, you know, aggression from other Latin tribes that they sort of had to respond to. But I mean, that was really how they started. They were an aggressive people. Their founding myth. I mean, the rape of the Sabine women. It was the you know the stuff like that. They're completely warlike people much more so than humans are today so or modern societies you know certainly ingrained within their society and absolutely i mean you have a god of war okay they have multiple gods of war athena is considered a god of war uh, well minerva uh mars of course m- more a, a god of bloodlust but still you know that he would be prayed to uh even aphrodite was considered a goddess of, of war really as well. and the well, goddess of love too that's interesting well, you have to understand, I mean, if you look at, say, the Trojan War, the, the Iliad, uh, she helped start that war, mm-hmm. okay? So she is considered, you know, she would be prayed to for war. Uh, not as much as, say, Athena, who is sort of the go- more of a goddess of strategy in war, mm-hmm. whereas Mars was the god of bloodlust in war. Gotcha. Yeah. A very passionate people. Yeah, and, exactly. And for many, fame came with wealth, and wealth was side-by-side side with being... An upper-class individual, which mm-hmm. also meant that you did time in, in the military. You Absolutely. were expected to do that. That was your civic duty as being someone of the upper class. Whereas today, when we think of folks who are of the upper class, we think of them almost kind of avoiding war. Yeah, It's something that they don't want to be involved with, and they'll pay off whatever it takes to keep out of it. Whereas if you had done that in Rome, it would have been counterproductive. You would have been made fun of. Yeah. You would have been mocked. They, I mean, uh, most of the senators... You know, Republican era senators—they all fought. Oh yeah, uh, patrician. I mean, that's what you had to do. It was almost your like your price of admission. Yeah, you know? I mean, of course, if you're a patrician, 
you're probably wealthy. Not all patricians were wealthy, but the entire class system was based on how, how much money you actually had. Right. Um, and so if you had a certain amount of money, you were considered part of the equestrian class, which is essentially a knight, you know, mounted mounted warrior. Equestrian meaning horse, of course. Yes, of course. Um, and so uh, that class of people, I mean, the, the wealthiest people were going to be on horses, yeah. so they're not going to die in battle like the lowest-ranking Roman right. citizen pleb who's in the army because he really doesn't have any other way right. of surviving. Well, he, in, in a way, a lot of feudal European society based their class system off of Roman class yeah, system. Yeah, and in my studies uh, just for this, when Diocletian split the empire into the east and west, he did a lot of reorganization, and he sort of set that, he sort of set up a sort of primitive vassalization system where he split things up and he put vicars in all these places that reported directly to their Caesar. So, of course, you had the East and West Caesar. And so, from that, you sort of get this uh, top-down right. way of organizing things. And, Dan, please share with us, what city was the eastern half of the empire placed in? Constantinople. Constantinople, which was, as you've listened to... Uh, no, there might be giants. No, Istanbul was Constantinople, but its original name was Byzantium. And in yes. fact, why did they leave that out of the song? By the way, I don't know. Maybe it's hard to been, rhyme with Byzantium. It, isn't it's it? hard to rhyme with Byzantium. Exactly. I still, I, I think they could have lived up to the challenge. Yeah, Byzantium, yeah. and this is important too because yeah. to the Romans, there was no oh, this is the Byzantine Empire and this is the Roman no. Empire. That's a post facto right term we pla- we have placed on it. That was probably coined by um, one of the most famous Roman historians. I have his whole little uh, set right here, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, by Edward Gibbon, British uh, author. But he pretty much coined the term Byzantine. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's important to know that, because why do we mark that point in history, uh, particularly with Constantine, when he actually named it Constantinople, and of course, he actually named it Nova Roma. No, he named it, oh, New Rome. But they named it Constantinople after Because it, it was popularly known as Constantinople because it was Constantine's city. Gotcha. gotcha. So, he called it, so he was the one who said, this is New Rome. Yes, he called gotcha. it New Rome. Uh, but everyone else called it Constantinople, and that's what it stayed as. Ah, gotcha. But the reason why we call it this era mm-hmm. of the empire, and I know we're skipping forward quite a few hundred years at this point, but now by, this, by Constantine's reign, mm-hmm. two empires... Though the power had started to shift more closely toward the east, not in the west, correct? Rome was greatly diminished. Uh, there right. were there was just lots of stru- you know problems. It was uh, such a huge empire. Uh, the west was not as wealthy as the east. The east had so much wealth in it. It was closer to you right. know, the trade in the the east. A lot of people think, oh, it was in Turkey. Well, back then that whole area was Greek. Right, and that o- is almost where, all of Asia Minor was Greek. Right, because of the, of the Hellenized world, because of all yes. the trade that had take place there, and that is why they marked that shift. Because the mm-hmm. language officially it was became Latin to Greek. Yeah, right? it, it was a it was a slow change. Greek was always not always in Rome, um, but there was a time when Greek was the lingua franca. It was the language of scholars, the intellectuals. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because that's what philosophy was written in, and philosophy was incredibly right. important. Uh, philosophy is like the theology of the ancient world. Right, and speaking so, of theology, yeah. all the Christian books in the New Testament were originally composed in Greek. Yeah. So, there you have it. It was because of that, the respect for that language. Yeah, well, when, and, and I think, what is it, most of the, the early uh, Christian theologians, their biggest influences were, of course, Greek philosophers, uh, Aristotle being 
one of the top. Exactly. And yeah. there was a little bit of Neoplatonism as well. Yes. In there. As, yeah. And um, so we start to see that shift. And because Christianity is now a legitimized religion, at least in terms of the Romans, we start to see far more integration of that into the empire. But it wasn't actually Constantine who, I mean, he permitted the religion to coexist with the Roman religion, but it was actually later on that it became the official Roman religion. It was... uh, Yeah, Constantine, um, after the death of Diocletian, there were six people trying to become Caesars. Mm -hmm. And Constantine, well, let's put it this way, a couple of the Caesars died, there was some infighting, he was waiting patiently, and he had one enemy kind of left, Max the son of the uh, the former Western Roman empires. So they had the West and the East. Constantine was the son of the Eastern. And I believe uh, Maxentius was the son of the Western Roman emperor. Uh, and so those two, Diocletian retired and retired. He kind of pulled a Pope here, right? So he just retired. <laughs> he pulled a Benedict. Yeah, yeah, he pulled a Benedict. Him and uh, I think Maxentius, uh, uh, Diocletian and Maxentius retired, and it opened up this void, and there was wars, and uh, here's the point I'm getting to. Constantine was on the battlefield, and he would tell people, this is a popular story, he would tell people, he said he wanted, he wanted to pray to the one, to a, to a god, not the one true god, but he, to a god that would uh, let him win this war, and he, what he said he saw was, in light, a cross come, you know, he saw a cross being broadcast pretty much onto the battlefield uh, in light, and he heard the words, you know, fight under this banner. Yeah, and okay. there's actually a similar moment that happened to Charlemagne. Yes. Several hundred years uh, later, where they said, in this name you shall conquer. That's exactly what was said to Constantine yeah, as yeah. well. So the story is sometimes permitted to Charlemagne, who, of course, was the first Holy Roman Emperor, Holy yes. Roman Emperor in 800. But we're going to get to that later. We're, that's that's far beyond the end of actually Rome. If you, so. if you ask me... Constantine was a political opportunist. I don't actually believe he saw these supernatural things. Of course things. not. I mean, that's just that's just me. Yeah. I believe he was a political opportunist. But he understood. He saw the tide. He saw that, look, people are converting. There's fewer pagans. There's a lot of Christians in the Senate. And I think he kind of saw it. And it united his empire because he, instead of per- persecuting all these Christians now, they were accepted. Right. And it helped rally them to his cause. And slowly, over time, he kind of took to the conversion. But yeah. early on, he was sort of, like, I, I believe I mentioned it a little little earlier, uh, it was more like an addition to the pantheon. Jesus right. Christ was now up there with, you know, Dionysus. I always use the Greek names, I'm sorry. Uh, but Bacchus, he was up there chilling with Bacchus, you know, turning water well, no, into wine or Bacchus something. Bacchus was the god of wine. Right, yeah. Jesus Christ did the famous water-to-wine miracle. Right. So, you know, I'm sure they got along great. Right, exactly. You know? and, and and so, you know, uh, <laughs> that was just... Uh, but eventually he took it over. It really became the, the religion of everyone in the West. Right, right. It, and so by him saying it wasn't the official religion, but a permissible religion, yeah. he made it much more attractive. Yes, right? yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and uh, to the point where he also kind of forced the hand of a formalized church, too. Christianity was, there was so many different ideas within it. And we talked about this in the Pope episode, so I won't go on too much about it. But Constantine was a large part behind the Council of Nicaea yes. in 325. He ordered which, it. He ordered it. So he told the Pope what to do. Well, um, at that point, the Pope didn't have the power, and he wasn't called the Pope. No, he was just the Bishop the of bishop Rome. The Bishop of Rome, right. Right. Because technically, that he... Constantine was the Pontifex Maximus. That right. was a title for emperors, because the emperor was always 
the head of the religion. Right, right. In fact, uh, the Pope was considered a patriarch. Uh, there were five patriarchs. We talked about this in the Pentarchy. Yeah. The, the idea is uh, it was Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, right. Antioch, and Alexandria. And Alexandria, yeah. Were the five main cities in that. And these, of course, were all bishops who were present in the Council of Nicaea, as well as many others. That cultural impact starts to happen. You have a formalized religion, an organized religion now, and we start to see that, that impact well, on the empire. I have this great book. It's called Lost to the West. It's written by Lars Brownworth. It's fascinating. It's about the Byzantine emperor and sort of how, or not emperor, the empire, and it's sort of how it got a bad rap. And I'm just going to read this really quickly. Uh, th- this is what Constantine kind of thought. He Remember, he's a military man. Uh, The problem with Christianity, he thought, was that it suffered from a distinct lack of leadership. The bishops were like the old senators of Republican Rome, always arguing but never coming to a consensus unless threatened. Thankfully, Augustus had solved that problem for the empire, allowing the senators to continue to talk but dominating them by his presence when things needed to get done. Now it was Constantine's job to rescue the church. Under his watchful gaze, the church would speak with one voice— and he would make sure the world listened. There you go. So, Interesting. Well yeah. Done. So, I mean, it's kind of, uh, he did it because he saw what was happening. And one of the reasons he did that, there was a bishop in Alexandria named Arius. And, and there was the Arian heresy. The yeah. Arian heresy, which to me makes a lot of sense because they were saying, well, Jesus may not be fully divine. He right. Would, he, they believed he was a celestial being, but he was not. The I would say he would be more uh, akin to Hercules, who was half human, half god. Yeah. Right, and that's sort of what they were thinking. Uh, at least that's how what I feel they were thinking. And yeah. So, yeah. I believe Arius was actually a priest, but um, either yes. way, the, the heresy still still sticks true. And you know, we can always talk about the dawn of early Christianity in another episode yeah. too. But to go with it, to the history of Rome and not include Christianity would have been unfair. Yeah. To I think understanding. The later half of its history, mm-hmm. sure. Well, it was a huge part of it once we, uh, once well, it, we... it dominated everything afterwards because yeah, yeah. I mean, Rome already had a state religion, right? Which is uh, the Roman religion, which was created by their second king. Yeah, and and because of that, we have one of the best still standing relics of the Byzantine Empire, which mm-hmm. is Hagia Sophia. Right? Yes, Hagia Sophia for many years, uh, up until I think the construction of Saint Peter's Basilica, the second one, was the largest church in the world. And it was this, it's this massive dome. If you guys have ever been to Istanbul, it's unbelievable. It was also when the Turks took over, it became a mosque. Uh, and now it's a museum. But it's just, just this massive, massive dome. And it has withstood earthquake after earthquake. And keep in mind, for those who don't know, Istanbul sits on a fault line. So they get earthquakes there all the time. And this building has not sustained serious structural damage in the 1200 years that it has been or plus that it has been around the word highest to feel means holy wisdom and there is kind of a an unofficial saying that it is literally literally being held up by a gold chain from heaven because it has withstood so much geological and political and cultural instability so it's it's really is a, a tremendous monument to uh, that period of time uh another quick uh, paragraph from uh lost to the west Uh, The two architects didn't disappoint. These are the two people that were hired to build the Hagia Sophia, or rebuild it, Mm -hmm. because it had been there for a long time. But the the Justinian, the first, was the one who made it its epic elegance that it is today. Right, and he he was, of course, was emperor. Yes, he was was emperor of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, At that point, it was the Eastern Roman Empire, though he did restore most of it Mm -hmm. in in his reign under with the the great, great General Belisarius, who is one of my favorite Roman history characters. Cool. Uh, But... 
the two architects didn't disappoint, rejecting the classical basilica form that had been used for 300 years. They came up with a bold and innovative plan, building the largest unsupported dome in the world. They put it on a square floor plan and distributed its weight over a cascading series of half domes and cupolas. Mm-hmm. So that's what makes it, you have all these half domes sort of leading up. Is it the Hagia Sophia? No, I'm thinking of something else that has the hole at the top. That's the, uh, that's that's the, the one in, that's the Pantheon. Yes, which yeah. I believe it was Hadrian who Hadrian rebuilt that. it. Oh, okay. Originally, it was Agrippa who had uh, had that built. And started the dome? No, he did not start the dome, but he had the original uh, Pantheon built. Right, And then Hadrian, was Hadrian's dome. Yeah, right? Hadrian yeah. went and rebuilt it because he wanted a better... Yeah. And Hadrian was was a later um, Antonin emperor, you said, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that dome, if I'm correct, is the largest uh, self-supporting dome. Yeah. In the world to this day, it's an ama- yeah, it's amazing. It's pretty incredible. All it has supporting it is a single ring of stone at the very top that keeps all of its sides together, which it's is uh, it's incredible. Like I said, it's unbelievable. And one of the geniuses parts of that is the two architects. They um, they put crushed brick in the mortar, yeah. yeah. And so because of that, are they actually made that part of the mortar? And because of doing that, uh, they made the porous nature of it more susceptible to absorb geological shock. As we start to come towards the end of this episode, because we are coming towards the end here, I know we've, there's so much more to talk about. I Rome know. is such a huge topic, and we will have to have, we have a... to do a, a Too Goofy Part 3. We'll have to eventually. at some point. Yeah. Um, it may not be in the immediate future. I would love to have Dan. I'd love to have you back on the show for it. Thank you. Um, but I feel like a, a good way to kind of end this is to jump back a little bit, because we, ta- we didn't talk a whole lot about Hadrian besides what we just mentioned, um, but a later emperor in that same dynasty uh marcus aurelius mm. oh of course who is of course known to our nerds on film nuts who are listening uh as the emperor from gladiator gladiator played yeah. by the late great richard harris yeah uh, he you guys for maybe younger audiences would know as the original dumbledore and the uh first two harry potter movies also a an ex-husband of elizabeth taylor what, oh, who Richard is Burton. It? oh, Richard Burton. That's oh. my bad. I'm sorry. I just yeah. get my. That's dicks okay. Confused. There are so many people who've been married to her. Yeah, you know. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I, I do want to say because for a lot of people in the past 10, 15 years, an introduction to Rome to them really was Gladiator. Mm-hmm. And I know that seems kind of strange, but it's just the way our society is. You know, we are a very visual society. We see movies, we see television shows, we see documentaries, and those are all perfectly acceptable ways to be introduced well, to unlike the Romans. The Romans love their entertainment. Yeah, they love their theater, and this is this is not unlike that. I think the movie is great for what it is. Obviously, it's full of historical inaccuracies. Totally. But it's also full of some truths, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty incredible. And particularly, of course, the antagonist of the film, uh, Commodus, who himself ruled as emperor for about 12 years, a much longer period of time than was depicted in the film. Yeah, if that, or if it was, it was very rushed. It didn't right. Feel, yeah. Didn't feel like 12 years. No. Commodus actually was kind of a cuckoo. Yeah, he, he was, was totally nuts. This is one of the interesting things about Roman imperial succession is that a lot of the emperors we had been talking about were adopted or they were some they weren't direct inheritors yeah, they were like a nephew or a, a cousin. nephew or, or like i said adopted yeah. you know um, unlike commodus who was who was C- a direct Commod- heir. marcus aurelius had 13 children so there was no doubt that one of his children would inherit and uh that's kind of one of these things that happens when you have these hereditary inheritances is that you do get terrible emperors and the Byzantine Empire is full of a lot of these sort of no-name emperors that really just 
didn't do anything because yeah. they they inherited and they were kind of terrible. Uh, and we don't talk about them that much because they just maintained the status quo. They you know, they were like, yeah, exactly. They maintained the status quo, and the status quo was doing what the the nobles wanted you to do. Right. I will say what's interesting is the Commodus of the movie is said to have, you know, shown to have, you know, fought in gladiator games, uh, and the actual Commodus did also fight in the arena. Uh, he was more inclined to kill wild animals that mm-hmm. were highly controlled, and of course there were many people nearby to make sure that he didn't die. But he was thought to have been actually quite the skilled hunter. And that makes a lot of sense. Hadrian, for example, was a hunter. He loved to hunt. And hunting to aristocratic Romans was sort of a low sport because they don't hunt. People hunt for them and get them their food. Okay, right. But he did it for the sport. He enjoyed it. And that makes a lot of sense. And I believe uh, Marcus Aurelius also liked to hunt. Um, and I, you know, that would make sense why these things would pass down. And I'll even tell you, like, the, the battle in the very beginning. Oh. <sighs> is epic I'm that is hell. so amazing and it's so historically accurate down to the very details mm-hmm. the finest details that were paid to the attention of of the character's clothing and the the props that were used and everything it oh, is and the germans yeah, oh I was gonna God, say they were, they were conquering germania with yeah, yeah yeah the germans were, were were done i think very well in that because the germans uh, essentially you know romans were incredibly organized the germans were barbarians I mean, yeah. let's, that's what the Romans would have called them, barbarians. Right. And they, they had very little strategic planning other than, well, let's just rush them and kill them. The movie is one of my favorites. Yeah, and I, definitely. I, I still enjoy it to this day, despite the fact that you know, Maximus is essentially an amalgamation of several different mm-hmm. people all into one. And isn't, there was no gladiator that killed the emperor yeah. in, in the ring like that. However, would have never happened. It is interesting that Commodus was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And he was killed by a wrestler. He was killed by a wrestler in his bath, however. Oh. Uh, and this he is was because... that kind of emperor. <laughs> <laughs> there was the thought that actually Commodus was, was looking to assassinate and kill the council-elect, mm-hmm. who opposed him, essentially, in control of the country in many aspects of it. Uh, and he was said to have plotted this scheme to actually dress very much like a uh, like a gladiator so he would wear lion skins or something like that and he would kill them and they would blame it on this the so-called gladiator who then disappears and nobody ever finds him but instead they they thought it would be um kind of ironic to have a, a wrestler uh come on in there and, and kill him and the wrestler was known as uh, Nar- narcissus uh i don't know if he you know liked to lie a lot and believe it but he was uh responsible for killing commodus which is interesting it's possible that he was that. a slave and that name was just given to him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was. And, you know, we go back to t- if we can go back to talking about Marcus Aurelius. Sure. We can't talk about him unless we say what he was sort of known for, and that was that he was the philosopher king of Plato. Yeah, he was. He, he was the closest thing to that. He yeah. was the closest thing. And, and, you know, here's just a quote, and this is from his meditations, and I'm actually reading this from a, a, a biography on, on Marcus Aurelius by Frank McLinn. It's called Marcus Aurelius, A Life. <clears throat> but this is a, this actually comes from Meditations. Uh, Meditations is one of the very few sort of philosophical texts written by a world leader of any era. I am made up of substance and what animates it, and neither one can ever stop existing any more than it began to. Every portion of me will be reassigned as another portion of the world, and that in turn transformed into another ad infinitum. There you go. And, and that's that's a stoic philosophy, but it's it, it's fascinating how that is really sort of almost a scientific fact because when we die we go back into the world energy cannot be created or destroyed and that's almost sort of what i feel he's sort of getting at is that i'm here now 
but I'll always be here and I've been here before. And it's that's a stoic That's a stoic sort of belief. It's interesting because obviously this is after the fact and Marcus Aurelius had no way of knowing how it would be preserved, but the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum, which we could do a whole episode on those alone, Oh yeah, they are preserved to us today because of a terrible tragedy mm-hmm. that took the lives of all the people who, or many of the people who lived there, and now they've been left to us. Literally a snapshot in time where we can look back on an ancient Roman city and understand who these people were, the lives that they had. We know intimate details about the lives of the people who lived there. And in many ways, it has kind of come full circle, kind of Mm -hmm. like Marcus Aurelius was talking about, right? Now, here they are as they were. Now, a part of them lives on, and a part of them teaches us and inspires us to know more about the, Mm -hmm. the people of Rome as a whole. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, I think that's a, a good stopping point for today. My mind is overloaded. Dan, you are an amazing resource. Thank you so much for coming on the I show. I tried. I did my. I did some research. I wish I had done a little more research on the uh, the Julian Claudian Claudio dynasty, but eh, gotcha. uh, you got it there for me. <laughs> Uh, you know, we would love to have you on the show again. We, anytime. Rome is certainly not a subject that's going to die anytime soon, and we'll keep going with it. Yep. Um, well, well, there is a reason why we still talk about it, and it, and this is one thing my Roman history professor, uh, his name is actually Gaius Stern. Awesome. That was his real name, Gaius, <laughs> which I thought was awesome, and I'm going to share this with him when, I, when the podcast comes up. He'll appreciate the shout-out, and then he'll probably correct me on everything I got wrong, <laughs> uh, which will be fine. Uh, but he told me that... It's really the only era that we can compare to modern America because there's so many parallels, not just because it was a republic, but because of the way people acted, because of the things that they did. It was an empire that was so diverse that you just didn't see that in later times. You had people who, when they conquered an empire, I mean, we'll talk about the Mongols. The Mongols were less interested in ruling, but they were more interested in collecting tribute, whereas the Romans were more interested in spreading Rome. And right. Romanism. And that's truth with today. We've been trying to spread Americanism for absolutely over a hundred years now. Yeah, that's so, a topic for a whole other podcast. Absolutely, <laughs> the American Empire. Um, guys, please, as we usually say, don't take our word for it. We have some wonderful resources for you. Dan mentioned the books directly, primary sources, as well as other great secondary sources. If you don't mind, I'll just tell you what I brought with yeah, me. Please. Um, I already talked about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. That's by Edward Gibbon. That is. That's the classic modern text on the later empire, but there's other really great books. I especially um, suggest uh, The Twelve Caesars by Suitonius. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, taking it's, place it's, in the Roman It's the days. first Twelve Caesars, uh, uh, including Gaius Julius Caesar, the original. Um, and then uh, Caesar, by the way, means Harry. I don't know if you guys went over that, but that's what oh. that means. Hmm. That's why he got that as a special nickname. Hmm. Um, I also brought uh, this book, Hadrian. It's by Anthony Everett. The Essential Marcus Aurelius by Marcus Aurelius. <laughs> Lost to the West by Lars Brownworth. And then I also brought The Annals of Imperial Rome by Tacitus. Cool. Very awesome. good. You know, there was a really great documentary out there that PBS put out. I want to say it was back in 2000, 2001. And it was part of their Empire series. Mm-hmm. It was called The Roman Empire in the First Century. Mm. And if you haven't checked it out, it is a really fantastic uh, film. It's a four-part series mm-hmm. uh, narr- narrated by Sigourney Weaver. Wonderful. And it is really uh, very well done for those of you who are looking for maybe um, something a little bit lighter uh, in the evenings to watch or what have you. And you can find it on uh, Hulu, I know for sure. And then, um, I'm sure you could probably find it on PBS's website Absolutely. or something. And the Rome TV series that was on HBO, if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
Uh, and if you get the DVD, there's a, a special feature. As you're watching it, it will actually tell you if something's historically correct or not and why they changed it. Interesting. And, of course, iClaudius. Yes. We mentioned earlier. iClaudius. One more, finally. For those who are interested in looking more for an online resource mm-hmm. on uh, the Byzantine area of the Rome and Empire, Fordham University in New York has a wonderful resource on their website about Byzantium and lots of great things that you can look up for their religious influences, Greek influences, and there's even a great timeline, bibliographies. You can look up tons of great resources you can look up for that later part of the Roman Empire. I have a friend who has a degree in the Byzantine history, and I I don't I just remember just now I should ask her and see if she wants to come on the show sometime. Absolutely. Maybe we'll do that for part three. Oh, and cool. almost every classical text is on the internet for free. Right. Yeah. So if you want to read the primary sources, iBooks, easy. all that, yeah. you get really easy. Yeah. Folks, thank you again so much for listening. Please head on over to nerdonomy.com where you can subscribe to our other great podcast nerds on film. And, of course, check us out on our blog where we have postings weekly in addition to our listener feedback button. We love to hear from you. We love to hear all of your feedback. So please drop us a line. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, that is the place to do it. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy. As well, Dan, do you have a Twitter account? I do. I do have a Twitter account. I guess it would. You look up Dan Lazarus. Okay, cool. I I'm, I, pr- I don't know if I'm the only one, but there might be other Dan Lazaruses. All but, right. Uh, I do have a Twitter account. Very I don't. Nice. I, don't I, I, I just don't use it very often. I'm mostly a, a lurker. I just uh, gotcha. look Fair to enough. see what other people do. Well, Fair you can enough. follow me at the Brickmont, and you can follow me at Brian Moriarty. There you go. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. And tune into us next time. Same nerd time. Same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com.